This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Alex Coogan-Reeves. In the program this week, there's more upheaval at New Zealand cricket, while Jesse Ryder announces a move down south and Matthew Sinclair's on the job hunt after his retirement. The Tall Blacks miss out on NBA player Stephen Adams for the Oceania Champs. The America's Cup is failing to capture the imagination of those in San Francisco, and Nepal New Zealand gets a new CEO. The period of change at New Zealand cricket has continued with their director of cricket, John Buchanan, leaving the role effective immediately. The Australian Buchanan took up the position in 2011 and overhauled the Black Caps selection policy, employing compatriot Kim Littlejohn as national selection manager. New Zealand cricket's abandoning the Buchanan selection structure it brought in a year and a half ago and handing power back to the national coach. The Chief Executive David White and Buchanan have always had a difficult relationship and the latest policy change appears to have been the final straw. The Australian was contracted through to 2015, but White told me he's now decided to leave New Zealand cricket immediately. I've had some recent discussions with John, and, and he has decided that due to family circumstances, he'd like to return to Brisbane, Australia. Um, we respect that decision, and we, have, you know, we wish him all the best for his future endeavours. When was this decision made? Well, we've had discussions over the last few days, and um, and um, decided that and finalised all that yesterday. Obviously, he was contracted through to 2015. Do you have to pay out that remaining salary, or because he's leaving, that's not the case? Oh, as you know, uh, you know the financial details of any employment agreement are, are confidential, and and we're sim- simply not able to say any more on that matter regarding his contract, unfortunately. What are sort of the uh, plans in terms of finding a replacement? We're. Uh, we're just going to sit back and, and, and have a look at the structure over the next few weeks and review that. But, but we will certainly be getting uh, someone to come in and replace John to run our high-performance program, uh, absolutely. But just the, the scope of that role, we're just going to sit back and, and have a look at it. So is it possible or fair to say that there could be some significant changes within the management structure? No, I don't think the, the, truck, the structure will uh, change radically at all. I, I think the structure is... It, it, might might require a little bit of tweaking, but I think the structure largely is is right. Um, and, but we're just going to work through the details in the next few weeks. This comes on the back of the changes to the selection policy as well, and also you'll be employing a new selection manager. Will will that happen after a high performance manager has been found? It's highly likely that um, that we won't have the new high performance person in place by the time that we. Um, have the new general manager on national selections, but we've got a very strong uh, panel, and it's fantastic that uh, uh, Sir Richard Hadley has agreed to be our independent expert in that area. I guess, though, in an ideal world, would you prefer to have the new high performance manager already in there and involved in the process of recruiting 
the selection manager? That that would be ideal. Um, but in this case, I think we're probably going to struggle with the timing. But in saying that, I'm comfortable that we uh, we've, we've got the expertise, you know, to to appoint that person. And like I said, fantastic to have Richard Hadley. What's um, spurred the decision for the ch- the change in the selection policy? Obviously, it's only been in place a couple of years. Well, it's pretty much the same policy, really. All is what we're doing. It's the same two selectors, but all is what we're doing is just providing clarity on. Um, obviously, the, the the general manager of selections and also the head coach uh, will work very closely together. But ultimately, someone has got to be accountable for that. Um, and, and what we're saying here is that um, as the head coach is accountable for the performance of the team, um, we believe that ultimately he should have the final say on the, on the team that, that he picks. But am I right in thinking that um, when Kim Littlejohn was in the role, he he had the final say on selection? No, it was a little bit unclear, to be quite honest. I, I think it was that's one of the reasons that we, we're just tidying this all up. We we, we want absolute clarity and 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 you know in, in clear direction moving forward. So that's why we've just tidied up the policy. So it's got you know absolute accuracy here. Well, the selection as it is in terms of the uh, points rating that's given out to players and all of that, does that stay the same? I guess we'll need to talk to uh, Mike Hesson and the new uh, general manager of selection. Um, like I said before, Kim Littlejohn has, has set some, some, you know, some good structures and systems in place. But the, um, you know, the methodology, I guess, of, of how they pick the team will be needed to be decided by um, Mike Hesson and the new general man- manager of selection. The self-imposed international cricket exile of troubled New Zealand batsman Jesse Ryder could be coming to an end. Ryder hasn't played for the Black Caps since February last year, opting to take time out from the international game as he tries to overcome alcohol issues. He's also still recovering after being assaulted in Christchurch earlier this year. After 10 years playing with Wellington, he's to join Otago for the upcoming domestic season. The Otago coach Vaughan Johnson spoke to Stephen Houston about Ryder's move and why he believes he could be back in the Black Caps this summer. It's been uh, something that's only been really pushed forward this week, really. I mean... Managed to have a bit of a chat to uh, Jesse earlier in the week, and from there, obviously, it was you know his decision on you know he'd like to perhaps have a new challenge, and, and that's how it's come about. So, did he approach you? You approach him? No, I actually uh, spoke to his agent earlier in the winter about you know what Jesse's up to, uh, along with a number of other players from as most coaches do in the middle of winter. Um, and Jesse's name kept coming up, and and we you know got to a stage where we started chatting and. And uh, that's how it all come about, really. What's the attraction? Oh, the attraction is a world-class player, a player that wants to get back to playing for his country, and a player that I think will uh, fit in nicely at the top of the order if we if we haven't got Hamish Rutherford and, and one or two that are not available through national commitments. You've obviously had a bit to do with them in the past, so you know what you're, you're letting yourself in for. Oh, look, I've uh, worked uh, with, with Jesse previously in Wellington, and I enjoyed uh, all the years I had with him. I mean... People tend to uh, look at the negative things with Jesse all the time, and it, it actually annoys me because, in terms of the negative things, he's just like any young kid in his younger day. And uh, you know, I think he's learned a lot. He's matured, and, and he's now in a, a situation where he's committed to playing for his country again. And you know, all I'm really focusing on is making sure that that, that he's that he's the right player for for our team, and and that his, uh, you know, the environment around him, like it was in Wellington, must, I must admit, it was, was good, and, 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 you know, they did everything they could for him, and I'm sure they did a really good job. But, 
when you've been somewhere for 10 years, it becomes a little bit stale, I would have thought. certainly does with me from time to time, and you need a bit of a spark-up, and um, that's, I think, how it come about. Do you, though, have to make special or put things in place, especially for someone like Jesse Ryder and the issues that he's got? No, there is no special rules in place for Jesse. Our culture, I'm not sure about that word, but our, our, um, our environment is one that the players control and the players manage. And he will just be like any other player coming to a new province and he'll be guided by what the other players do. There's the right things and the wrong things to do in terms of cricketers. And I'm pretty confident that our, that our lot know what is right and what is wrong and, and Jesse will just follow them. You're convinced he's got to a new stage in his life and his career? Oh, look, I think the will to want to play for New Zealand again is massive. Um, and, and I think, to a certain degree, New Zealand need him. So um, the, the, incite, the excitement for us has been um, just knowing that Jesse wants to get to the top again. And, and anybody that wants to play for their country again must, um, must obviously uh, have that desire to play, to play good cricket. So he's now at the point that he wants to play for New Zealand again? I think he is. Yeah, he's, he's certainly made it uh, made, made it quite clear that he doesn't want to play, you know, domestic cricket for the rest of his life. He wants to get back to the top level and he wants to play for New Zealand. And it, it's got to be positive all round. Jesse won't won't get back in the side tomorrow. I mean, he'll have to get some form on the park and he'll have to show that he's in good nick and 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 the position that New Zealand want to fill that he can fill that. So there is an expectation or likelihood you'd think that you would see him back in the Black Caps over the summer. As long as he scores runs, Stephen. I mean, he's got to score runs and he's got to perform like any other player. I mean, you're only as good as the last time you played. And if he can string some performances together and make sure that he's he's consistent with his run scoring and, and can bowl a bit for us and, and do all those sort of things that he does really well, I'm sure that he'll get back in his own team. The veteran New Zealand cricketer Matthew Sinclair walked away from the game this week following a domestic career spanning almost 20 years. Sinclair's best remembered for scoring two double hundreds early in his test career and a terrific one-handed catch to dismiss the Australian batsman Matthew Hayden at the MCG. However, he fell out of favour with the selectors in the latter years of his career, playing his last test in 2010. He continued to shine in the Central District side and scored 36 centuries in his career, but financial struggles have forced him to give the game up. I spoke to him about his decision to find a day job. First and foremost, it wasn't the, the most easiest decisions to make in regards to, to giving up a career that I've been involved with for so long with Central Districts and, of course, New Zealand. But I think the timing is right now for me to, to gracefully bow out of the game. Um, you know, the decision based around it was, was purely through family um, and as well as, as you know, potentially looking at a, at a career outside of the game in regards to whatever that may be. I'm not sure, but um, it's now going to hopefully create an opportunity to make me more marketable um, to, to go out there and find some form of meaningful, sustainable employment. Yeah. Did you still feel that you had um, a fair bit to offer Central Districts um, on the park? Absolutely. Look, at the end of the day, I could have kept on going until I, until I dropped dead. <laughs> but um, the reality is that six months of employment um, is not sustainable for me to, to cover a wage for a year. And, you know, that, that was sort of part and parcel of my decision uh, you know, because the last sort of three months have been very, very hard for me to try and find some sort of meaningful employment because I know that I'm actually going to be away for the other six months. And and I guess also, you know, family being first as well. I'm looking forward to sort of spending a bit more time with my family. Uh, Central Districts, being Central Districts, is an area where we do travel around New Zealand um, a heck of a lot. 
and now I've got an opportunity to spend more time with my family and and sort of I guess carve a carve of a career actually um, outside of the game and look for some sort of um, you know cricket pathway or you know a pathway actually outside of cricket but into some other sort of form of meaningful employment. Do you think it's more a problem for sort of players that are a bit older in your age that have got the families and things like that, whereas for the younger guys they can sort of uh, live on what they get mm. for that six months of a year and do whatever other kind of work that they can get because um, yeah. they don't have those same responsibilities? Totally agree. When you've got sort of family involved and, and young children, that you, you, your whole perspective on the game starts changing because you're now having to, uh, to provide for them. Um, and, and let's be fair, you know, a six-month wage in cricket is actually very, very good. I mean, I, I've had that you know, right through it. It's given me opportunities. It's created opportunities that I never thought were there, but yeah, now it has been all put into perspective. Yeah, obviously you've been a servant to Central District Cricket for almost 20 years now. Was there any sort of talk or opportunity to move into some sort of possibly role in the off-season with them or Oh, look, I mean, I'd, I'd love for that sort of opportunity to sort of maybe sort of create itself an opportunity to do that. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't been the case as of such, but uh, you know, who knows what that could mean sort of down down the future. You know, me actually getting out of the game and, and finding some sort of other employment outside of it could sort of um, enhance my opportunities to do that. So uh, that, that's a positive within itself, and that's where I've got to sort of see it. Um, and, you know, I still have a lot to offer cricket, you know. I mean, like, I still want to get myself involved with, with helping out as much as possible, and, you know, whether that's in a representative level or a club level um, or even within sort of coaching over the winter. I mean, I'm still um, very, very keen to sort of uh, get myself involved with that. Do you feel like New Zealand cricket do enough or maybe need to do more to sort of help players adjust to their life after cricket? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, it, it all started, I guess, you know, I've been through the through the middle of it all, really. You know, obviously with the, with the player revolt in regards to getting our union sort of sorted out. And I think, you know, they are making sort of huge steps in regards to, to looking at this. And I think... Um, you know, with me possibly getting out of the game, I'm sure it's sort of maybe woken up a few of these guys who are quite young and saying, heck, maybe I do need a plan B. And I think most of them nowadays are pretty much onto it. They're actually getting out there and getting degrees and, and doing this and doing that. Um, you know, I think the thing that's a little bit been lacking is actually getting experience in certain areas um, because that's what I've found that has been very, very hard for me to do because I've got every cricketing experience you could get. But Finding experience outside of that has been very, very challenging, and I think if we can sort of bridge that gap using the various sort of support services around in cricket and sort of sponsorship and, I guess, and, and companies who have a genuine love of the game, then I think that will actually sort of um, alleviate that problem, I guess. Just on the cricket side of things, you uh, had, had a career filled with a lot of highs and a lot of lows. What, what would you say was your proudest achievement during your time as a cricketer? First and foremost, being selected for my country, uh, receiving my black cap, uh, and then, of course, the I guess the debut innings of mine will always be um, remembered by the general public in New Zealand. And I guess for me, really, because you know those sort of four or five days were very, very special because um, I, I set up, you know, which was potentially a, a very, very good sort of victory against a very good West Indian side. So for me, that was definitely a career highlight. Um, a lot of people talk about my my one-handed catch over Melbourne, which was which is um, which was sort of a, a great sort of accomplishment within itself. Uh, the old adage of sort of, you know, um, catches win matches is definitely sort of uh, still true and that sort of set up a good sort of one-day victory there. So, you know, these these are all the highlights, I think, of my sort of career. You um, were in and out of the New Zealand side for a lot of your career. How hard was that with the inconsistency within the setup there and just with their selections? 
Oh, look, I, I don't think selections had, had much to do with it, really. I mean, like, at the end of the day, a, a cricketer carves his own career in regards to a form. And, you know, if you're a cricketer who's in form, well, you're obviously you're always going to be selected in some way, shape or form, aren't you? And I guess, you know, it's true to form. My, my inconsistencies at that top level was a, was a bit of a concern. Uh, maybe it was all based around, I guess, my expectations that I had in my first debut match um, and thinking that I could actually keep continue on doing this. Uh, and then it sort of got to me in regards to saying, well, actually, you know, it, it's harder than I think, really. Um, and maybe I could have had a little bit more support in regards to, to that sort of um, transition. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it's happened. Um, I've, I've, I've certainly come out of it sort of swimming rather than sinking. And, you know, that's certainly something that I can um, kind of look upon and say, well, actually, I've, I've learned some pretty valuable skills in regards to that and, and look forward to sort of, you know, maybe passing those sort of uh, mental sort of thoughts on to the, the next group coming through. The Tall Blacks are set to miss out on the services of Stephen Adams for the upcoming Oceania Basketball Championships against Australia. Basketball New Zealand had been hoping to raise the $25,000 required to cover the new NBA players' insurance bill to allow him to play next month. However, his NBA franchise, the Oklahoma City Thunder, has rained on their parade, saying Adams will have to stay with the team to continue his preparations for the upcoming season. Ben Robinson spoke to the Basketball New Zealand Chief Executive Ian Potter, who's not shocked by the news. I'm not surprised. Like, you know, they've just made a big investment in Stephen, and they would be expecting to um, look for him to develop over there with them. Uh, and the Tall Blacks to them would, I think, would be a distant second priority at the moment. Um, and that's fine. If, if, if that's if that's what it is, then that's fine. But we'll be looking for him to be part of the World Cup campaign in 2014. Are the Thunder not obligated to release him to, nas- to his national site? Yeah, there is a, um <clears throat> obligation, and I'll just my, my, probably best described as a theoretical obligation, for players to be available for, for, for these sort of events, because this is a World Cup qualifying event. It's not a friendly. It's a uh, FIBA Oceania event and in theory there's an obligation for players to be released um, <clears throat> I guess if we made a choice between having Stephen this year or next year we'd have him next year if we had uh, it all our own way we'd have him now so that we could um, at least introduce him to the Tall Blacks environment in, as a precursor to his uh, more full involvement next year but I take it as you're anticipating working with the Thunder over the coming years uh, concerning Stephen. You're not really... Uh, you want to keep things amicable. Yeah, so we don't want to be a... You know, we don't want to position ourselves as a strident, demanding um, organisation that, you know, stamps its feet every time it doesn't get its way because that's not, not what we are. We like, We fully understand their position uh, and we would love to have Stephen here now but it's not a you know it's not a die in the ditch proposition what's more important is that we have a good open and um, collegial dialogue with them that that allows us to access Stephen when we really need him which will be 2014 World Cup year. Very good and apart from getting together the insurance money is there anything else that you might need to do for the Thunder to secure Stephen's services? Well, I'm, I haven't had an opportunity to talk with him, but I'm imagining that 
they would want to talk with us about Stephen's development and what what we can do to contribute to that development. Now, they'll have a view on what he needs to um, con- focus on, and we're very willing to be part of his development plan. Um, we've got some you know, high-quality players in the Tall Blacks. We've got high-quality coaches, and we think that we can contribute to his development, and what we would like to do is have that conversation with them and, and basically fit in with their larger plan. Meanwhile, the Tall Blacks have named a young team to travel to China as part of preparations for the Oceania Champs. They've named three teenagers in their squad as they look to develop depth ahead of next year's World Championships. I spoke to the assistant coach Paul Hinare, who was pleased to have just claimed his maiden NBL title as a coach with the Southland Sharks. I had two opportunities uh, in Hawke's Bay the two years before that I missed out on, so you know, for me I was... Uh... I was I was one and one no matter who I was coaching. Um, I'm a competitor. I was a competitor when I played. Um, nothing's really changed since I'm a coach. How much have you enjoyed, you know, your time coaching as compared to um, your playing career? Bit of a different challenge, but you enjoy it. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's a different role, but I'm in the same sport and I'm at, um, and I'm at the same level um, of coaching. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with uh, with how the uh, my coaching pathway is going. And just uh, moving on to the Tall Blacks and um, sort of the talent you've seen here this week, are you pretty pretty impressed with the potential that's in the squad? Yeah, I think you know more than anything, with uh, especially with four newbies, um, it's just an opportunity. It's a it's a year where these guys are going to have a chance to put their hand up. Obviously, with the World Champs next year, you know we're doing a tally up with the with Nenad and, and Piero the other day, sort of counting up the names and, and possibilities of who could make up the squad next year. And we're sort of up around 22, 25 names that could um, genuinely make the side. And that's that's a place where I don't think the Tallbacks have ever been. You know, we're dealing with a you know a, a probables pool of about 13 to 14. Um, and, and when you start counting up and getting into the 20s, that's that's a good place. It creates uh, uh, pressure on the guys that are sort of in the squad, uh, pressure on the on the so-called regulars, um, and uh, and that can only um, mean good things in terms of really earning your jersey and earning your spot on the team. So these uh, four new guys are all obviously pretty young. Are these guys that you see as being a pretty big part of the World Champs plan looking forward to next year? Oh, it depends how they go. You know, they're 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 in the in the team for a reason. Uh, part of the reason is because there's a lot of guys unavailable. Um, you know, whether they're in the mix uh, next year it depends on whether the guys that are unavailable are available next year, um, and also how they perform on tour um, uh, this year in China, and if they get the opportunity to play against Australia. Do you see it as a disappointment that? the top guys it's hard to get them back to um, play these games or do you look at it more of an opportunity for the Oceania champs and things like that to be able to um, give new guys the opportunity and see how they go? Definitely not disappointed and it's just it's a part of life it's a part of um, Tall Blacks basketball um, there's, there's so much more going on for, for top level players now which is a good thing you know they have other commitments you know NBA commitments NCAA commitments um, resting from from long and, and hard seasons from playing in Europe those types of things so um, you know that, that can only be uh, beneficial for, for our sport and, and like I say if, that, if that's a going to be a common thing in years to come all it does is open up spots in those um, in these so-called gap years uh, for young and up, up-and-comers to um, to get that experience at the top level. Yeah I guess it puts you in good stead if, if a lot of those top guys decide they'll come back and play the world champs next year you've got a whole lot of other guys that have already played at international so they're tested. Yeah exactly um, it's, it's, 
experience is, is such a huge thing, um, and experience at the very top level against the, be the very best uh, opposition is, um, is gold, especially for these young guys. And so what is it exactly that you want um, these young guys to get out of this China experience? Uh, we want them to compete. We want them not to be overawed by the occasion. You know, playing China in China um, is a hell of a tough ask. You know, you're playing in front of sellout stadiums. Um, you know, you're playing against probably uh, you know a little bit shady officiating. Um, how do you deal with that experience? Um, and, and it's really just sort of uh, seeing how they respond to those uh, to that environment and to those experiences. So is it fair to say that you'll probably be more focused on the development than the results side of things? In these games? We're definitely focused on the process. What we're focused on now is two games against Australia, which we want to win. Um, and this, this tour to China is part of that build up. The Stephen Adams thing's obviously been uh, talked about quite a bit. From an encore perspective, he'd be a great guy to have committed for the World Champs next year. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be. I mean, anytime we can get a seven foot, genuine seven footer with international size and athleticism to be able to help us out, you know, that's really been our Achilles heel. Um, forever in the Tall Blacks is not having genuine size um, to compete internationally. Um, without it we have competed but you know with it uh, you, you definitely you know when Short Marks was playing you, you notice the difference. I mean he didn't play a lot for the Tall Blacks but when he did um, just that inside presence on the boards and defensively definitely helped so you know you, you're looking at the possibility of you know having a, a forward lineup of Stephen Adams, Alex Pledger, um, you know, Jack Salt's got good size, Isaac Fortu, Mika Vakona, you know, there's some, you can rattle off a few names here with genuine size, BJ Anthony and genuine inside ability, so it's, uh, it's exciting times. The America's Cup is continuing to fall flat in San Francisco, with a lack of genuine racing failing to attract the punters. While Team New Zealand was able to race Luna Rossa in the first opposed race of the America's Cup Challenger Series this week, one-boat races are still the norm, with Artemis Racing still assembling its boat. The Swedish team hopes to be on the water for the remainder of the challenge. Sudden commentator Bob Fisher spoke to Morning Report's Jeff Robinson, who asked how the sponsors were feeling about the lack of excitement around the racing. Well, mostly they are a bit upset, and that's a minor way of putting it. I think they're very upset with the way this is going. Funny enough, I went out to see Paul Kayard and the Artemis team yesterday, and I went over to Alameda, where they have their headquarters, and their boat is just about ready to come out on the water. They think they should be launching on Monday, having completed everything, including their stress tests and everything like that. But, you know, they're way back after the accident they had in which uh, my friend Bart Simpson lost his life. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's hard to think that this is the really the last challenging series before the Cup itself. And people are asking questions. Are people turning out to watch it? In smaller numbers, I have to say, you know, they're not going to go out and a lot of people watch the one boat going around a track. Although today, I have to say, it was a 3M's day for Emirates Team New Zealand. They were mean, moody and magnificent. The way they sailed the boat was textbook, copybook and perfect. I mean, you couldn't, I couldn't get any more worked up about it if, but it was only one boat. And the danger is that they... they were sailing that boat so well. They, they, they hit a new um, speed record of uh, uh, 44.25 knots, and that's, that's pretty good going. Um, and uh, then they also got round the course very quickly. Only It was only a 9.32-mile uh, course, but they were around in 23 minutes. This is the same size course that Luna Rossa the other day took... Uh, 
35 minutes to go round, and really, you know, the difference was, was is immense. Big worry, though, that they'll get, you know, they'll peak too soon, they'll become complacent, and they haven't even got to the America's Cup. I mean, they're still in the Louis Vuitton, aren't they? Yeah, well, there's no complacency about this team, believe you me. They concentrate on every day. And, you know, you can see the improvement day by day by day, and it really is improvement. I've watched their jibes today, and there they were, up on the foils, into a jibe, maintaining, coming out of the jibes on the on the other set of foils on the other hull, and, you know, they never dropped off into, into the water. So, really, it was quite magnificent to see how, they, how well they're sailing this boat. Look, I, I hate to rain on a parade, but I understand there is concern about the cost of security for this and infrastructure, $22 million that the cities uh, had to front up with, which supposedly was going to come from the sponsors and other people involved in, in, in the series. Well, there's always a shortfall when it comes to the America's Cup. <laughs> Shortfalls in Newport, but then the New York Yacht Club used to fund that. But uh, ever since, as, as you know, we've had the, twice had the America's Cup in Auckland, and uh, <laughs> there was always a shortfall there. True enough, uh, but I, again, you read of people saying that the things are yawn with just one boat going round and round. I want a refund of my ticket, and that's not going to help uh, the, the returns at all, is it? No, and this was billed as a billed as a spectator event. Uh, the spectators aren't fronting up. I looked uh, the other day at the uh, the bleachers that they have outside the uh, Golden Gate Yacht Club, which is the defending club, uh, and there was one person sitting in the bleachers as the boat went around the course. Now, <laughs> one person only in these bleachers. I thought that was. Rather sad. But, you know, the whole thing is a bit sad. We should have boats out there by the score, but, you know, this thing is a bit expensive. The Chief Executive of Hockey New Zealand, Hilary Poole, is to switch codes, having been appointed the new CEO of Netball New Zealand. Poole replaces Raylene Castle at Netball New Zealand following Castle's recent appointment as head of the National Rugby League Club, the Canterbury Bulldogs in Sydney. Poole, who's been CEO of New Zealand Hockey since 2009, will take up her new role in October. She spoke to Stephen Hewson about why she's making the switch. I started uh, my career actually commercially um, with a Bachelor of Commerce and, and also a Phys Ed degree. Um, but I worked in financial services for 10 years in, in corporate roles. Uh, and then I worked the next 10 years um, advising a range of New Zealand businesses and working in some government governance positions. Um, but I always had the aim of bringing my... Um, I guess my underlying sort of passion and, um, for sport together with my commercial skills. So you, you see, see it as a, a sort of step up, even though something like hockey is much more of a global game than netball? Yes, I do. It's, it's a larger organisation, and, um, and within New Zealand, um, uh, I think there's a great opportunity to, to impact you know, a number of young people's lives in particular um, with the growth and development of the game. Um, and look, I'll take a lot of my learnings from hockey, I believe, into, into netball. When the role came up, was it something that you went, yes, this is what I've wanted to be, or where I've wanted to be, or was it more of a case of mulling it over and then deciding to, to apply? I'll be honest, it, it would be the latter. I'm really uh, pleased with um, the progress we've made um, with hockey and um, you know we've got really good momentum um, as a sport. The timing's never perfect and 
you know, when the netball opportunity came through, yeah, I could see it really as a, as a logical logical next step for me. You look at hockey and it's an Olympic sport and, and netball's obviously not at that same level. Did that cross your, your mind? Yes, it did. I think the, the opportunity with netball is the, um, the commercial development um, that... Uh, has already been undertaken with sport. The ANZ Championship is a really important competition uh, for for netball and you know and for New Zealand and for the profile of the sport. That, along with really the opportunity to develop netball um, more so in New Zealand, really presents you know some pretty good challenges for me. You know, lying ahead. You know, netball's got a fantastic profile, as have, um, you know, the Silver Ferns. Um, you know, much as it pains me to say, as New Zealand's, you know leading female um, team sports brand. So, you know, we've been working on um, closing that gap with the Black Sticks women. Uh, and, you know, look, it's, a, it's an increasingly competitive, you know, sport and leisure space. So it, it's, yeah, the challenges are going to continue to be there um, with netball. Do you see some sense of irony in that, that you mentioned that about the profile, whereas with the Black Sticks women, a third in the world in, in a global game like, like hockey? Yeah, it, it, it is. And look, it comes back to, I think, the stage of development of, of the sport. Um, the, you know, ho- hockey's greatest challenge is to settle and strengthen its international competition calendar. Uh, so so uh, it needs to do what um, effectively cricket did in the 90s to, to really get a strong international global competition calendar and then to um, package and sell those broadcast rights. Um, and then the value will come to the sport, and then the sport will be much more regularly on uh, TV, and therefore that will create value for you know commercial partnering. Um, and um, look, I, I believe that will happen in the next four to eight years with hockey. Um, it's already happened uh, with netball, and you know we need to now take netball to, to the next um, to the next step. And uh, you know Australians try to do um, generate more value in terms of um, building the. Um, Building the broadcast viewership and uh, you know capitalising on that. Where do, where do you see yourself going from here? Because they always say that the first role of any new CEO is to find their replacements. <laughs> uh, look, I just you know really like to to make a good success of of, of my my um, you know leadership of netball and provide really strong leadership um, to, to the sport, uh, so that there's a really collaborative approach from grassroots to elite and a clear sense of sort of the strategic direction. Um, so to continue to build on what, what is in place. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm a great believer in really working with high-quality people um, and um, looking forward to joining the netball team. It's got a very strong board and um, uh, staff, and I'm looking forward to getting to know the uh, CEOs of the new zones, um, the five zones, which... Um, Netball's been very courageous in, in making those changes um, over the last 12 months, and it will be really important to the sport that the zones and their franchises are strong and sustainable because that then will feed in, into the ANZ Championship. So, yeah, my immediate focus is obviously on um, finishing my time really well in hockey and making sure we, we don't miss a beat and uh, settling in and understanding what makes netball tick. You've obviously decided to carve out a career in sports administration for yourself, so do you see yourself being, I don't know, Chief Executive of the NZRU or New Zealand Cricket? You've raised an interesting point. You know, it was a really key or critical decision um, for me to to remain in sport and, um, say, going back to, you know, my, what, what I'm very passionate about, which is sort of 
health and uh, health and fitness and, and sport. Um, so I can see a long-term future for me in sport, uh, whether it is in an executive role or in governance roles. You know, I'm sure I'll, well, I hope to be around for a while, um, but uh, couldn't couldn't bring out the, um, the 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 magic ball on that one. Playing your cards close to your chest. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that's an issue though in itself when we get back to talking about women in sport and, and the role or the need for more women in those kind of top positions? Well, look, I think it's coming. Um, look, I've recently spent time, uh, I was over, fortunate to travel over for the final of the, of the World League and spent time with um, a couple of other other of the national associations, so with the English Hockey Board um, and uh, with the Dutch. And um, their sport is probably a generation further down the track in terms of professionalisation and the the career paths that are there for, for uh, you know, professional roles in, in sport. And look, if I look at my team now in, in Hockey New Zealand, my leadership team, so of, you know, five of my six direct reports are women and, um, you know, still obviously very much going for the, the best person for the job. And, and I can see the, um, I can see women coming through and look, I just think it's, you know, it's a matter of time, um, and uh, you know, then making you know, you know, women need to make make the choice. You know, particularly if they want to raise families and keep a career going. And look, I, I made that choice and worked for ten years. What I call my mummy juggling phase, where I worked part time um, while raising our three children with my husband Paul. We've now got three teenage children, so I worked part time for for ten years and um, to keep myself current and keep my confidence up and. Uh, you know, keep my networks and connections up and try to continue to learn and always looking for the elusive balance, which, you know, comes at, comes at times and, you know, comes more frequently, obviously, as, as, as your children get older. But, um, you know, and I think, again, it's a very much a personal choice for how women, um, you know, want to, to uh, work or not work during those years. But, um, you know, certainly I think, in sport, um, you know, the work environment is increasingly encouraging of and accommodating for it anyway. No doubt you, you face some trepidation going into a new role, as anyone does, but what are you looking for the most? Uh, look, there's several things there. Um, look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, getting inside another sport and understanding it, understanding what makes it tick. Um, and then, I guess, applying some of my um, experience and learnings and... Uh, really trying to distill what's really important and I guess a sequence of which you know we try to do things um, I think what can happen in sport you can often try to do too much because you can see um, that there's so much to do but you know there's not a sport in New Zealand that is not resource constrained and uh, even though netball's larger than hockey um, I can imagine you know there's going to be a whole lot we're going to want to do um, so really getting inside and understanding how, how netball um, uh, ticks and understanding where the opportunities are, and you know, and then yeah, from from a commercial side, I'm um, really looking forward to understanding again netball's properties and where there is current value and future value um, in terms of the opportunities to generate you know more income for the sport, which then enables you to be able to invest back in, into the game. And that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via sport at radioNZ.co.nz and you can get the latest sports news anytime on our website. I'm Alex Coogan-Reeves and we'll be back next week. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 